Hi, this is Dr. Victor Eppert, author of C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea. You're listening to Pints with Jack. Volume 3 goes from the end of World War II to the end of Lewis's life. Lewis is famous. Lewis doesn't like being famous. And yet he loves being famous. He's still dealing with his problem of pride. And he knows it. And it's a regular problem for it. He fears maybe he's lost his gift for writing and the books that didn't do very well, that's actually good for him because he needs a little bit of humility. Dr. Hal Poe from the previous Pines with Jack conversation. Season six, episode nine, the completion of C.S. Lewis. After hours with Dr. Harry Lee Poe. Welcome, everyone. Here on Pints with Jack, we're working our way through the works of C.S. Lewis. And today we have an after-hour episode. Typically, we are in the middle of the season. You guys are used to hearing a quote from the book that we are reading. But in this case, I chose a quote from the previous recording that I did with Dr. Poe. And so we will make sure we link that. Definitely listen to part one and part two. But I really like that and the way he phrased the... And the way you phrase, because you are here with us, Dr. Poe, <laughs> the, the, the pride and being famous and loving it, but struggling with it because it humanized Lewis because we all can relate to struggling with vices and feeling them, being tempted by them. And so that was why I chose that. And, and Dr. Poe is with us here again today to now discuss how he described volume three in our last one. And so before introducing him, a little bit of background since it's been a bit since he's been on the podcast, Dr. Poe serves as Charles Colson Professor of Faith and Culture at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee. Dr. Poe teaches, lectures, and writes about how the gospel answers the deep questions of every culture. He has published over 300 articles and reviews, 25 chapters and edited volumes, and 20 books, including his latest book, The Completion of C.S. Lewis, From War to Joy. Dr. Poe, welcome to Pints with Jack. Thank you, Matt. It's good to be with you again. Thanks for the invitation. You bet. It's really good to have you back. And I'm really grateful. I was telling David, I'm very grateful that I got the chance to be the one to do all of these three volumes with you because on the podcast between Andrew, David, and myself, I am the least knowledgeable on C.S. Lewis. I'm the one that as I read him, the works, I'm coming from more the naive amateur perspective of how is this impacting my spiritual life, impacting my theology. And so to have a chance to go through your three volumes in depth in preparation for an interview, because they are so incredibly informative, particularly because of the space that you had to be able to unpack so much stuff. It's been really a gift for me, selfishly, to be able to learn more about Lewis's life at all of these different stages and then how you framed each book towards something like becoming, making, completing, and there's themes within those. And so this is really a great joy to be able to bring this full circle with you and to be here and to be able to dive into this. So thank you again for coming back on. Well, thank you. It's good to be back. So I wanted to actually start with that that concept, becoming, making, completing. I'm, I'm assuming those words were incredibly intentional and the titles were very intentional. What went behind creating those titles? Like when you think of the first book, the becoming, you know, what were your goals with that book and then the making and then the completing? Like, how does that all fit together for the full C.S. Lewis's life? Oh, good. That's a that's a wonderful question. And it it 
tracks my approach to scholarship. Some there, there are two major approaches to scholarship. One is to have a big idea and to prove it. And so you go looking for evidence to support your thesis. And that's certainly been popular in the Western world the last hundred years. I have a different approach. For me, it's more the big question. And uh, you discover the answer to the question as, as you go through. And so that, that was my approach to this biography. I have been reading and uh, studying Lewis for decades, but uh, I didn't have a thesis about him. I began simply because I'd been reading the, the letters and in the first volume, Lewis is a child and then a teenager. I, I realized so much of who he became in later life began in those teenage years in, in particular, things he liked to do, things he was interested in, things he hated. And so much of his conversion and then his career as a literary critic and then his work as an apologist, Christian apologist, grew out of those teenage years and what he was reading and, and thinking about. And so I, I, I realized that uh, those, those formative years were critical to his conversion and his, his later life. So, that, so becoming C.S. Lewis seemed to, to um, capture that. The, the making of C.S. Lewis, that volume deals with um, uh, his life from the end of World War I until the end of World War II. And during that critical period, um, subtitle from uh, atheist to apologist, it deals with his, his conversion and all the dynamics that went into that, but also how he became a writer. He'd been trying to be a writer since he was a, a child. He did not become a writer until he was a Christian. Oh, he wrote things, mm. but it was not until he became a Christian that I think his, his critical mind and his uh, imagination really blossomed. So anyway, that was, that was the, the making of him. And then that last part, after the war, a week after the war ended, his new best friend, Charles Williams, died unexpectedly. He hadn't been sick that anybody knew. He went into the hospital for a, a procedure that was fairly routine. and. Um, he died. And from that point on, R Lewis is not obsessed with death, but in the 40s, the late 40s, it was a grim time in, in England. And um, it was a grim time at the, at the kilns. And Lewis had a, a collapse, had to go into the hospital for five days in 1949. And uh, he had just turned 50. And at age 50, he regarded himself as an old man. And so to a certain extent, he's preparing to die. And I think it, it reflects the Psalms, um, teach us to number our days. And in the completion of, of C.S. Lewis, all his life coming to a good close, things wrapping up. And in the Bible among Christian theologians, this is known as sanctification. Mm. Um, what is the work the Lord is doing in us, preparing us for glory? Now, when he preached the weight of glory 
during the Second World War, you know, there's an inkling, if I can use that word, of what's to come. But in his last few years, he, he really is reflecting on uh, the relationship between everyday life, day after day, Tuesday afternoon, and um, glory. Mm-hmm. So um, that was the, the final title. But I have to also say that, that titles are, are a struggle for me. Uh, writing a book is easy, but coming up with a title for the book is just ghastly. And I take comfort in the fact that Lewis was the same way. Most of Lewis, most of the titles for Lewis's books were not Lewis's titles. They were the publisher's titles. He had some pretty ghastly titles for books. <laughs> for what it's worth, I think having the word becoming, making, and completing is powerful titling. It, it tells me so much, which is why I wanted to start with that question. And the answer was beautiful because it tells you so much of the intentionality behind each of the books. And I love what you just said there with the almost the sanctification near the end of his life, because as we're about to unpack into some of this, it wasn't all pretty in this last section. There was some misery as we'll dive into in the beginning. There was suffering, there was struggling. There was a lot going on that he handled very nobly. and. I, I love how that becoming, that making prepped him for this, the completing of it all. And so I actually, I didn't even think of that word sanctification until you brought into this discussion, but I feel like that fits so beautifully with this book. And before diving into some of these difficulties and unpacking some of the, the sections, what high level are a few of the key kind of milestones in this part? We have the Joy Davidman. We have the um, the period right yeah, after World War II. A lot was going on. Most Americans don't realize that um, in England, they were still having rationing into the early 1950s. So seven years after the war, they were still rationing butter and meat and, and bread and clothes and paper. Uh, and Lewis was getting care packages from Americans during that period. So it was a time of hardship. He was having a hard time with the academic politics at Oxford University after the war. There was a huge leftward turn in Britain, but it, um, it, it was exacerbated at the universities. And a new generation of, of faculty was coming in, and Lewis was the odd man out. And he was not much of an academic politician. Now, Tolkien was. Tolkien was a superb academic politician, but uh, Lewis just didn't know how to play the game. He just couldn't do it. So he had a hard, hard time at at Oxford. The home life, Mrs. Moore, who had been living with him since the end of World War I, was difficult in her prime, but she was impossible as she entered dementia. And she had a number of health problems, and um, so chaos reigned. Lewis wrote to um, his friend, Sister Penelope, a, a nun at an Anglican um, convent near Oxford, that theirs was not a happy house. And um, the Inklings didn't know what was going on, but Lewis wrote to a number of people about what domestic life was like with Mrs. Moore. And then Warney, his brother, was a terrible, terrible alcoholic. He was a lovely person and he was not a mean drunk, but he could become a senseless 
drunk and would have to go to the nursing home to, to dry out. And then the whole process would start again. So money was short. He was having to pay for Warney's private care at a nursing home. And Mrs. Moore always had two servants in the house. And so he was fretting about money. So there was a lot of stress coming from many different directions. Mrs. Moore finally went to a nursing home in 1950 and died in 1951, in January of 51. And Lewis just felt an incredible sense of freedom. It was like the burden of, of life had been lifted. And uh, so we entered the 50s uh, mentally on an upswing, but he was also conscious that his health was failing. He'd never been actually a healthy person. His mother was always worried about him as a child. He caught whatever disease was going around and, and um, seemed to have weak lungs. He caught the flu at the beginning of every term. And um, that was in the 30s. They had three terms a year at, at Oxford. So the first two weeks of every term, first two weeks of an eight-week term, he was in bed. And um, by the 1950s, he was catching flu twice a term. Then he had um, war wounds from the First World War, shrapnel uh, embedded in his body that they did not remove. And the shrapnel was slowly making its way to his heart. And he finally had surgery in 1944 to remove the shrapnel before it killed him. But he was never really strong after that. And after his collapse in 1949, he, he seems to have had a heart problem. And those, those difficulties, the enlarged prostate probably began in the early 1950s. So um, it's a, a problem that men have normally in their mid to late 60s. So he was ahead a of the game on that. So um, that was a difficulty, but, but he always had a good disposition. Even the, up to the last days of his life, he was cheerful and took everything in stride. And I think this is a, an evidence of uh, the grace he was experiencing. We use the word sanctification. It's, it's rather clear in the second volume that in his life up to his conversion, he was really an obnoxious person. He I remember was that. arrogant and conceited, had a sense of superiority and no patience at all with, with other people. And after his conversion, he is a different person. He's just a changed person. Now, we know from his letters, uh, there were some people that he would write to about his, his spiritual struggles, and that pridefulness was one he always had to deal with. He, it never went away. For him, it was always the great sin, and he always struggled with patience, and um, he had many opportunities to struggle with that, uh, living at the kilns with Mrs. Moore and, and Warney. So... Um, his really is an example of the Christian life for an ordinary person. And no one was, is more ordinary than Jack Lewis. He's just, a, you know, lived his life rather simply in one little house there in town and went to work every day and didn't go on adventures. 
how does that how does that one statement go whenever you and i've always loved it whenever you pray to god and you ask for the virtue of patience he doesn't necessarily <laughs> bestow patience on you he provides opportunities for you to grow in patience and it yes. feels like that's what you're sort of describing here <laughs> yes yeah like so that. if you <laughs> if you don't want those opportunities for growth don't ask for, for uh patience <laughs> I always think about that, how much of the struggles and difficulties in our life, I don't know if the right phrasing would be we sort of bring upon ourselves, but like if we have a strong ego and we have a deep devotion to our Lord, we're asking for him to constantly help that ego, he's going to create opportunities that are incredibly painful to rip that ego away from us. Whereas if we could just somehow lay it down a little bit more freely it might be slightly less painful. And so I always, in my own life, I go to myself, what are the things that he's chiseling away because I'm not willing to let them down myself? And I see some of that in what you're describing here with Lewis. Yeah, and and you can see in his life that in fact, he he did become a humble person, though he probably never saw himself that way. Because the the closer he he got to glory, the more aware he was of how inglorious he was. I like that. That's a good way to phrase that. Can you explain during that period of difficulties, you use this term that you you could read from his meditations. You said there was these meditations that he wrote, and I wasn't entirely sure exactly what those were referring to, but how they prepped him for this next season of his life. Okay. What um some people have, have talked about the fact that Lewis uh, stopped doing apologetics or he lost his um, his muse or whatever you want to say. He wasn't as productive in the post-war years compared to what was going on during World War II. But uh, I would argue that a lot was going on there that was important to him. He was writing these little short articles for the church newspaper. Walter Hooper uh, collected all of these articles, uh, he did that hard work. Uh, God in the Dock is one of those collections. He, he uh, collected several others. But you, what, if you go through that collection, you'll see that he was very busy in the 1940s writing these little articles, pithy insight. It was also when he started writing poetry again. He'd almost completely stopped writing poetry in the 30s and through World War II, but after the war, he started writing poetry, which is, in for Lewis, you look at the kind of poetry he wrote, it was meditative. It, it was, well, if you want to call it spiritual poetry, in that it's reflective, it's, um, he's getting inside, he's noticing the presence of Christ in the everyday, and he's noticing how we are as children of God in whom the Holy Spirit dwells still on that journey. Lewis loved the journey story, and he loved the idea that the, the Christian life is a journey. He fell in love with that idea when he was a teenager. So those meditations give us a, a glimpse of what was going on with Lewis spiritually and how he was growing, how he was being nourished, I think is the way to say it, how he was being fed spiritually and strengthened 
for a very difficult time that he was going through. And he, he, he went through it. He had the strength he needed, the spiritual strength he needed to go through it. And um, he had a vibrant devotional life. He, um, every day he spent time in prayer. He used the prayer book, which meant that he read a psalm every day. And so when we often neglect our relationship with the Lord and then trouble comes and we say, oh, Lord, why aren't you here? Well, he's been there all along. We've just been ignoring him. Uh, so Lewis did not ignore Christ. Christ mm. was ever present um, in his life. There's another part in your book here that I wanted to touch on a little bit, and I'm not sure how much we can really unpack in this section, but it it just more bringing it up to explain how much I appreciated what you put in here with it, but the Narnia section, mm. and you wrote a pretty good bit of of also almost helpful analysis for understanding how to think of the different Narnia books, and I loved how you mentioned that what's so powerful about the Narnia series is how it very directly is showing that the Christian story is both rational and reasonable. And it's not meant to be an apologetics. And in many cases, it's not even trying to explain certain truths, but just show how they're reasonable and rational. And then you went, and, I, and I'm listening to this, and I remember like taking notes all the time, like, oh, that's really good. Well, that's really good for the next time I read the Narnia stuff. You mentioned how the line, the witch in the wardrobe, forces the reader to accept the idea of prophecy. You, you mentioned that Aslan breathing on statues shows the reasonableness of the divine life breathed into us. Magician's nephew, nephew explores the reasonableness of a beginning and an ending to the world. Paralandra shows, well, I guess that's not Narnia, but how evil could enter the world in a reasonable way in the dwarves see what it's like in the dwarves we see what it's like to to reject grace in edmund is judas but repents prince caspian is restoration of true religion after corruption it was like one after another and i'm like this is just absolutely incredible and i absolutely loved that section don't really have a question there, but really oh, appreciate you well, put that in. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Yeah, Lewis uh, grew in his own understanding of what constituted apologetics from mm -hmm. the time of the Enlightenment in the 1700s. In our culture, Christ, uh, um, apologetics had come to be seen as philosophical argument. And so there's a tendency, even, even Austin Farrar, his, his good friend and probably the, the great Anglican theologian of the 20th century, referred to apologetics as, as philosophical argument and that Lewis wasn't doing that after you know, the, the 1940s. Lewis, however, had an earlier understanding of apologetics because remember his, his theological training came accidentally when he was working on medieval literature uh, here he was a, uh, a literary man, but to understand liter uh, uh, medieval literature, you had to read St. Augustine and Boethius, and you had to read the church fathers because all of medieval literature was rooted in that background. So before he became a Christian, he had to understand cognitively Christian theology of an earlier period. Well, um, apologetics began in the generation of the apostles, really. 
and um, after that, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and all of these. So the idea of apologetics has more to do with answering questions rather than trying to prove something, to clear away the obstacles, especially the, the intellectual obstacles, to clear those away so that someone can hear the gospel, is willing to hear the gospel. And Lewis realized that there, there are several different approaches to apologetics. Now, the one that he, he was really good at, uh, a rational argument, such as mere Christianity or miracles or the problem of pain. But at the end of World War II, some youth ministers had asked him to talk to them about how to do apologetics, and he gave some, some clues, some examples, and that sort of thing. But then in the middle of that talk, which was later published as Christian apologetics in God in the Dock, Lewis said, what, what we need is not more little Christian books, but more little books by Christians on every subject with the Christianity latent. And he went on to describe how so many books have materialistic assumptions and presuppositions, and people take in so many of these kinds of ideas just in their, their, whatever they're reading. And with the Chronicles of Narnia, he gives a set of Christian assumptions and presuppositions to a story. But he does the same thing in his academic work, in his critical literary studies, such as The Allegory of Love, still in print, Preface to Paradise Law, still in print, The uh, Discarded Image, still in print, and um, his contribution to the Oxford History of the English Language, which he referred to as the Oh Hell. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a pain for him to write. His contribution was English literature in the uh, 16th century. Uh, excluding drama. He didn't want to have to deal with Shakespeare. That needed to be a different volume. But in all of those, he is demonstrating how to think about an academic discipline, in this case, literary studies, from a Christian perspective. And you mm -hmm. find that all the way through those, those books. So he was doing what um, in the 90s they were calling the integration of faith and learning several generations before that project. So you, you see his apologetics in his academic work, in his more rational arguments, in his stories, whether it's the science fiction trilogy or the Chronicles of Narnia or Till We Have Faces, but you also see him doing the original kind of apologetics, which Jesus enjoined us to do, which is our testimony. That's really what a testimony is. A testimony is not an argument for why you ought to be a Christian, or it's not an attempt to prove that the gospel is true. It is your own account of why you believe and what Christ has done in your life. And every Christian has a testimony. So every Christian can be like C.S. Lewis. He did that with his first work as a Christian, The Pilgrim's Regress, which he called specifically unapologetic. And it's, unfortunately, it's, for the average person, it's an allegory. So most, most 21st century people don't understand allegory. And Lewis later realized, hmm, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and so he specifically uh, was not allegorical with uh, the Chronicles of Narnia.
So that was the first one. Then uh, his his uh, account of his conversion, surprised by joy, mm-hmm. and then finally his account of how he experienced grief in the death of his wife, and uh, that slim little volume of grief observed is a testimony of a terrible struggle with the problem of suffering, which is the most common obstacle to faith around the world. Yes. Um, you, you may know that um, this was the spiritual issue of the Buddha, who um, oh, I didn't know that. wanted to understand why is there suffering and misery in the world. And he, he decided that the world doesn't really exist. It's just an illusion, and therefore there is no suffering. Well, that's that's an approach, <laughs> yep. and over a billion people follow that that approach. But it was the same issue for um, Charles Darwin, whose daughter died, and mm-hmm. his conclusion was that God is not really involved in the world, so that he could do anything to prevent his daughter dying. That's another approach. But then Lewis's approach is is quite different. How does leading Christian apologist deal with God killing his wife. That's the way some people say it. You know, we don't know why God took her, which is to say God has murdered your wife. Um, So how does, how does he deal with that? And, um, and it's an apologetic. It, it it truly is. So um, the, for the Chronicles of Narnia to get back to (laughs) after rambling a while, he's telling a story. And it's just a great story. Children love those seven books, and adults uh, love those books too. They come back to them. They mean something different the older we get. But what he demonstrated with those stories is that a story doesn't lecture, it doesn't preach, it doesn't teach a moral. The moral is either there or it's not. The reader sees the conclusion, what they should draw from the story without it being explained to them if it's a well-written story. And with the case of Lewis, a, well, a well-developed plot shows the logic of a prophecy about these sons of daughters and, and uh, excuse me, sons of Adam and daughters of, of Eve uh, sitting on thrones in Care Paravel and, and um, the, the, the significance of prophecy and its fulfillment, which is one of the uh, aspects of the gospel we sometimes forget. It's a, the, it was the primary element of the gospel that uh, the apostles used with the Jews. It was Peter's lead point in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. So, so Lewis is doing that. He's... he's um, following the gospel in those different stories that he tells and showing how logical resurrection is. It makes perfect sense. I love that. I want to draw attention, and I'm not sure how much you can expand or speculate on this because you did write in your book, we don't actually have a ton of information on this, but the brief incident, uh, and, it, and it touched me just even the little bit you did write on it. In 1951, I believe it was on the Feast of St. Mark, Lewis came to truly believe in God's forgiveness. As he came to embrace it, he experienced incredible accompanying joy. Anytime I hear something like that, my ears perk up because 
how often do I intellectually know something, but I don't necessarily experience it or believe it in my heart? Like, what do we, what do we either know about that or from, from your research, you can speculate around that event? Well, we know very little about it. He mentioned it to Sister Penelope in a, in a letter. He was also corresponding with a, a Catholic priest in Italy, Father Calabria. And their correspondence was in Latin because Lewis didn't, <laughs> didn't know Italian and the priest didn't know English, but they both knew Latin. So they wrote Latin letters to each other. But to both of them, he mentioned that on the uh, Feast of St. Mark, which falls on April the 25th, 1951, he had this overwhelming experience of forgiveness. And he, he, he said, I, I'd always thought I believed in forgiveness. And as you say, intellectually, he affirmed it. He certainly knew that was a, a benefit of salvation, that, that, but he experienced it just in, in floods of joy, which for him was this, the ultimate experience. And of course, we know it's uh, one dimension of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace. But what was the occasion? What did he need to experience forgiveness over? And goodness, it could have been an entire lifetime of, of, of <laughs> faults. And here we, we just have to speculate. In terms of the timing, though, Mrs. Moore died in January of 51. Mm -hmm. And he had this overwhelming experience of forgiveness in April. And given all that we know of what had been going on at the kilns for 30 years, 30 plus years, and Lewis bearing up gracefully. <laughs> but at the same time, here we speculate again, inside feeling, I can't stand this old woman. <laughs> I wish she'd go on and die. Did he have thoughts like that? Possibly. But here we're speculating. In Surprised by Joy, he talks about the deep regret he had for how he treated his father in the 1920s. Hmm. And he may be of, 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 have experienced forgiveness there because he's not wallowing in guilt in Surprised by Joy. So who knows? But he certainly experienced it in a profound way. And I think this is another aspect of the Christian life. Jesus said, um, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth and call to remembrance things concerning him. So this would be an example of Lewis experiencing something that he affirmed, only now knowing it at a very deep level. You see the same thing in the book of Acts with the, the apostles, bit by bit, you know, they were thick as a brick. <laughs> and, and bit by bit, Peter is coming to understanding. And, um, you know, his, his experience with Cornelius, and he said, now I understand. And I think that's, that's probably the sort of thing that, that Lewis had happened. I've had that sort of experience before. And, and um, hmm. it's a, oh, golly, wow. Have you ever, total side question, have you ever seen the TV series, The Chosen? Yes, yes. You like it? I do. I think it's very helpful in, in understanding what first century Palestine, what the culture was like, what the issues were what the relationships were between 
Jews and and uh, Gentiles and especially the Romans and how the oh. Roman system worked. So I, th- I think it's I think it's very helpful. Yeah, I really enjoy it, and it made you made me think of it when you said the disciples were thick. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, you can you can very much see that in that series. Yeah, one thing I like about the Gospels, they are so transparent about what the apostles did not understand. Mm-hmm. You know, they didn't understand anything until after the resurrection. They they just misunderstood. And they would say things like, you know, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus said, now don't tell anybody about this until after the resurrection. We didn't know what he was talking about. We didn't know what he meant. (laughs) Oh, that's such a good point. Yeah. So now turning to joy, I wanted to actually just get your thoughts because I I had a chance to interview Patty on the Becoming uh, Mrs. Lewis. Mm Mm-hmm her different takes on joy, Andrew's opinion on joy. You you brought up a, a number of things in here. I'm just curious. There's a lot of different perspectives on joy itself. Uh, we had biographer George Sayer calling her possessive and jealous. There was some talk of the strained relationship between Drac and to- Jack and Tolkien. Didn't tell his friend about the marriage. I'm just curious from your research, what you believe about joy her relationship with jack um some of the truths and myths around that oh goodness and she's i know certainly, no one knows for certainty so yeah she's right. she's certainly one of the most controversial uh-huh. figures uh related to lewis biography and you you probably know that lewis scholars and people who write and talk about uh lewis have very strong opinions about her some adore her and some despise her and it's all over the place you mentioned george sayer as far as i can tell most of the inklings except probably neville coghill did not like her and part of that is just she was american and not just an american a a um new york jewish american who fit all the stereotypes that the oxford click would not have liked. In fact, she was everything C.S. Lewis didn't like, at least hadn't liked 10 years earlier. So you've got that. It's, it's, and it's just plain old-fashioned prejudice. Uh, we should be familiar with that. Lewis was pretty much cured of that in the ni- late 1940s when he had this this overabundance of generosity from Americans sending him food. He was able to eat during the times of of austerity because Americans were sending him food packages on virtually a weekly basis. So the Inklings didn't care for. George Sayre was not an Inkling, but he was as close to Tolkien as he was to Lewis. We, we sometimes forget that. And Tolkien and Lewis really grew distant. They grew apart from about the time Lewis started writing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the, the, the Inklings as a writing club pretty much came to an end in 1949. They would still get together on a Tuesday morning and then later a Monday morning to 
drink it and talk. So they were, they continued to be a talking club one morning a week, but they ceased to be a writing club. So they weren't any help to Lewis in his writing. He found other friends that, that helped him with the writing, but Tolkien and, and Lewis drifted apart and Lewis wouldn't, didn't see him for big gaps of time. Uh, cause he didn't, he didn't come to the morning inklings. He was absent for years, especially once, uh, the Lord of the Rings came out hmm. and he didn't care for joy. So you've got that, you've got that group, Austin Farrer and his wife, Kay adored joy. And they were the ones who took her to the hospital when she fell and, and, um, they discovered she had had cancer. So it's, uh, it's a complicated thing. Uh, some people say she was a gold digger, but I think she was too smart to be a gold digger. If she, she was, I mean, she was a very smart woman and she would have been smart enough to know she could have done much better for herself in New York than Jack Lewis. I mean, she'd, she'd seen the way he lived and his meager existence. So she knew he had no, no money. So I don't think it's fair to call her a, 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 a gold digger. Was she infatuated with him? Yes. Was she in love with him? Yes. No doubt about it. Did she want him? Yes. Is that unusual? No. <laughs> Romance is that way. I mean, crying out loud. <laughs> Isn't that usually why people get married? I hope so. Um, was he scared to death of her at first? Yes. And it's fascinating to read the letters, um, her version of being with Jack and his version of them being together in 1952, 53, early on. But I, I don't think it's fair to say she was predatory because when she came to England, she didn't go to Oxford. She went to London. And that first trip, she only saw him, what, a couple of times in four months. Did she want to see him? Yes, I'm sure she did. But at that point, she was still married. So she wasn't running after him when she was married. Okay, she got went back, found her uh, husband having an affair with her cousin. They got divorced. She brought the boys with her back to London. And again, she, she moved to London rather than to Oxford. Would she like to have been in Oxford? I'm sure she would. Did she want to marry Lewis? I'm positive she did. Did she make herself attractive? Completely. But she didn't move to Oxford until Lewis moved to Cambridge. So she was playing it cool. I'm sure she was. <laughs> yeah. Did she go after him? Yes. <laughs> she there's did. Nothing wrong with that. Was he glad she did? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, he was desperately in love with her once they were married. I don't think he was in love with her before they married, except there's one thing that troubles me, and I'm just don't, not sure what to make of it. Joy was an open book in terms of giving a blow-by-blow -blow account of everything that was going on in her life. And uh, her letters to her former husband, Bill Gresham, are uh, a window on what she was thinking and feeling. 
and every crisis that was going on. And she was quite explicit about everything and need for money and on and on and on and on. She didn't say a word in her correspondence with him about a visa problem, not a word. And the only reason we believe there was a visa problem is because Jack said there was a visa problem and he was going to marry her and bestow his citizenship upon her in a civil service that had no moral or, or religious obligation because it was a, a state marriage and not a Christian marriage. Well, so uh, the question is, did, did Joy, was there in fact a, a, a visa problem? And uh, if not, was it something Joy concocted but didn't tell Bill? Or was it something Jack concocted? And I have no idea. I, it just, it's just strange to me that there's no account from her about a visa problem. Hmm. Don't know what to make of it. Yeah. I never, I'd never heard that before. I'm glad you mentioned that. Well, I, I don't know. I'm reluctant to mention it, but <laughs> nonetheless, <laughs> there it is. Don't I like it. And maybe uh, she decided just not to mention it to Bill uh, be, uh, for whatever reason. I mean, she, she could be discreet if she had a reason to be discreet. Yeah. So it's just odd. I'm curious, too, is, is I want to be conscious of, of your time here. As you went through these, potentially these three volumes, but maybe more specifically this one, what were some things, obviously you were, incredibly knowledgeable and a scholar on Lewis before writing these, but diving into this probably was quite a, a joy and a journey of learning even more and more. What were some of the couple of the big things that maybe you didn't know before you didn't realize before, or some things that jumped out to in this journey of these volumes? Yeah, I didn't realize I'd always thought of Lewis as a, as a hearty, robust, healthy person because he loved those long walks. But I, I was I was surprised to see just just how many health problems he did have during his life, and I I, I jotted down uh, the number of times he was sick uh, in the twenties, and it's just it's amazing. Uh, that's in the second volume. I, I think I have a footnote there in which I <laughs> mentioned you know dozens and dozens and dozens of of illnesses. So that was that was surprising to me. I'd always assumed that Owen Barfield was one of the inklings and everybody says he was, I mean, it's just, just standard knowledge. Owen Barfield was an inkling, but I, I can't support that. I don't, I, I don't think there's any sense in which we could say he was one of the inklings. He did attend a couple of meetings, but I don't think Owen Barfield became an inkling until the 1970s. People in the 1970s started talking about him as one of the inklings and, um, but if you read all the things he wrote about Lewis and the Inklings, he's not really very complimentary about them because remember, he was not a Christian and the Inklings were all Christians and he didn't like their theology. He didn't like Lewis's religious books. He liked his academic books. He didn't like his, his Christian books. He didn't like Lewis's reliance on scripture because uh, Barfield didn't see uh, the Bible as as definitive and final. He believed in the corporate human imagination that is, is evolving. And so he, he opted for the heretics 
because they were the ones who were creative and coming up with new ideas, and therefore that demonstrated evolution. So that's that uh, surprised me. I hadn't expected that. And then uh, all that I found out about Joy, that just re- reading her letters was was fascinating. The, I I was surprised by the relationship between Lewis and Tolkien over the um, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. I'm convinced that Lewis is the one that provided Tolkien with the plot for both books. It's the journey story there and back again. Yeah. That subtitle to the Hobbit is in fact, the kind of story that Lewis was captivated by as a teenager and that he spent his whole academic life dealing with. It was the, it was the plot to um, William Morris's the the well at the world's end. It's the plot to um, the quest for the Holy Grail. It's the plot for the Fairy Queen. You know, he was writing on that when he died, uh, and it, it deals with it in the allegory of love. And all of his all of his fiction stories are that plot there and back again. And the the hero is changed in the course of the journey. Tolkien stories, on the other hand, that you find in the Silmarillion, there's not a happy ending in the lot, and you go there and die. It's their stories of doom, despair, destruction, desolation, uh, and death. And Tolkien was working on The Hobbit, and he didn't know where to go with it. It just stalled. He didn't know what the journey was about. And um, at the same time, Lewis was working on the allegory of love, and they were meeting once a week to talk about what they were writing. And it was in that context that Tolkien was able to move forward and write a different kind of story, the there and back again story. And so the Lord of the Rings is the same plot there and back again, but he stalled on the Lord of the Rings too. He got to the birthday party. But he still didn't know what the ring was, and he didn't know what to do with it. And Lewis had just written a letter to Owen Barfield saying somebody needs to do a retelling of the old Nibelungen lead. That's the old Norse story of the dwarf who makes the ring of power with which you can rule the world. And um, no way. Uh, and and so the same uh, month that he wrote that letter to Barfield, uh, Tolkien got through his writer's block and started telling the retelling of the Nibelungen lead. So I think I think Lewis uh, is responsible for both of those. Uh, Tolkien, uh, I don't think, could acknowledge that. Uh, you From know, the he- bits I've heard of Tolkien, it sounds like you would have a very hard time acknowledging that. But yeah, this I'm I'm convinced. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure it's 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 not a smoking gun, but it's it's a loaded gun. <laughs> yeah, I like that. And I remember I haven't I'm actually going to be having a conversation with Dr. Glyer in a, in a few weeks on her space trilogy book, Deeper Heaven. But when we chatted about Bandersnatch, she mentioned a big influence Lewis had on Tolkien with the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. And so she didn't get quite as explicit as you did there, but she was very convinced he played a very important role. Yeah, he was the midwife. He, Lewis, I mean, uh, Tolkien kept stalling. He he really did have terrible writer block 
problem and maybe writer's block isn't exact. Well, no, that, that is it. He didn't know what was going to happen. He just yeah. didn't know what was going to happen. Mm. Well, Dr. Poe, thank you so much for coming on the show. And as I hear the landlord ring the bell for the final drinks, can you please tell us where listeners can find out more about you and much more importantly, pick up a copy of the completion of C.S. Lewis from war to joy. Well, there's a wonderful bookstore in Hendersonville, North Carolina, Stan Shelley's uh, Shelley and Son books um, in Hendersonville. They specialize in books by the Inklings, and he no has uh, just secondhand editions, but he also has first editions. He also has signed first editions, and he, he's always got new stock. So he's, he's the go-to person for Inklings material. If he doesn't have it, it doesn't exist. So that's, that would be one place to, to get it. Of course, you can get it on Amazon, but uh, that way you, you wouldn't get to talk to Stan. So um, I really want to go there now. Yeah. Oh, you need to. Yeah. Stan always brings a, a, a stall to our Inklings weekend in Montreat. The Inklings Fellowship is an organization that um, Don King and I have been operating since ni- uh, since 2000, so 22 years. And we do a, a weekend at Montreat College every spring. Our website is uh, inklingsfellowship.org. And every three years, we go to Oxford for an Inklings Week in Oxford. And we've just, just come back from that this, this summer. I can attest to, well, two things. One, I think I bought something from Stan because I got this very early copy of Beyond Personality at the Montreat Retreat where it was a stand. I didn't think I didn't realize it was him, but there was all these first editions. There was one very expensive signed first edition. I was like, oh, I wish I was more successful in life. <laughs> There's some <laughs> cool stuff. Yeah. But I can attest to listeners, the Montreat Retreat, David and I went, ooh, that would have been maybe three or four years ago, potentially. Mm-hmm. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. I mean, the 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 speaker lineup was just to die for. So highly recommend that. And also there's an audiobook version of the completion of C.S. Lewis. And so if you check that out, guys, I I greatly enjoyed is in preparation for this. I wanted to re-listen to it a couple of times and just going back and back and forth from work, having this listening and just going through Lewis's life. I thought that was an incredible way to consume this. So I very much enjoyed that. Well, thank you. Yes. Well, Dr. Poe, thank you again for coming on the show. And listeners, please join us next time when we'll continue going further up and farther in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.